Welcome to the Secret Storytellers of Wincanton podcast. This podcast is part of an interview with the author John Baxter. As he says at the beginning, he was shown four sides of paper that talked about an Italian who was a Napoleonic prisoner of war in Wincanton. And this man later returned to live with his wife in Wincanton, being both a barber and then a clockmaker. This is an extraordinary tale that I have used as one of the secret storyteller's stories for the story trail. But it had to be so short for that. And I was determined that others would hear the whole story. Here is the first part of my interview with John, as he details the amazing life of Bialetti, soldier, prisoner and clockmaker. Almost immediately, Napoleon organises another great task from a harbour in northern Spain, and northern, northern France. And there was a short peace, the Peace of Amiens, with yeah. the British. And he wanted to go out to San Domingo. And San Domingo is an island which is today uh, both... Uh, you've got to the Republic of Santo Dominic mm. and you've also got Haiti. It was an island divided in two. And the Haiti side was then uh, San Domingo and it was a very, very, it had been a very, very profitable colony for the French based on brutal slavery to get... Mm. Uh, the sugar cane and at this point out went uh, Bioletti and Bioletti became the Bioletti really had discovered that the, that the chances of being promoted despite all the fighting that he had done which I'm sure he should have been a sergeant by now mm. he didn't get it because the idea of an Italian ordering decent French chaps around was not acceptable. <laughs> so um, he was then picked out by a French general who had been living in San Domingo and working in San Domingo where the local slaves had revolted against slavery mm. and had come to be ruled over by a very able man named Toussaint Louverture, mm. yeah. who was a black man who had been highly educated. He was also a keen Catholic and uh, very keen on medicine. But he also, uh, when he was more or less elected by the locals who were revolting against the French, he came very quickly to become Governor-General uh, of the island. And he wanted to keep it within France. Mm. Uh, but Napoleon had sent out this huge army, bigger than the army he'd sent to Egypt. Just to, to take over San Domingo. 
yeah. and to put down the slaves and basically to reintroduce slavery. It was, which he ref didn't make public, was the most dishonest and horrible thing. And the French behaviour was quite awful. Uh, and this general who Violetti was working with uh, was very much on the side of uh, Toussaint Louverture, but he was mm. under the most right-wing and repressive of the French generals, who had himself been or was a slave owner. Mm. And uh, so it was, Violetti was, became ordinance to General Jacques Boyer. Ordinance is sort of right-hand man who does everything that the general asks him to uh, is a personal uh, he'll look after his uniform because it's very very important that you put on a good show in those days with the uniforms and uh, but he was also uh, he would know everything that the general did so he had to be trustworthy and intelligent mm. and literate and uh, able to organize horses and carriages and things like that and transport and in times of battle to be his personal bodyguard so it was you know it was a very responsible job and the two of them got on extremely well and worked together for 13 years mm. and in the end what happened was that Bialetti uh, and General Boyer uh, were sent by this awful general, General Rochambeau, to go out on a boat and speak to the person who was in charge of the Bellerophon, the Royal Navy captain, because the Royal Navy again had put the island under blockade. And that was the same, ba uh, same battleship that had actually been almost sunk in the Battle of the Nile, but had mm. been refitted out and sent out to the West Indies. And uh, Boyer would have gone out almost certainly with Pialetti with him as his right-hand man. And he'd signed a document of surrender. You've actually got a copy of it. It's amazing, one of the things that came out. Mm. And uh, we haven't got the copy here, but I've seen pictures of it. And uh, Rochambeau said this meant that all the French ships would be then become the property of the Royal Navy. Mm. And Rochambeau said no I think we can make a run for it. So they tried to. And the Bellerophon opened fire and sank the boat that they were in. And Bioletti says it was the most terrifying experience of his life to be under fire from the Bellerophon. Mm. These huge great cannonballs coming through and what you don't realise it's not just the cannonballs it's the splintering of the wood. Everything splinters mm. and that's what killed people mostly uh, in these battles. Yes. Anyway Bioletti was then on the ship with his general and with Rochambeau and his ordinance. So they had these two generals and they're right-hand men and a whole lot of other troops 
officers and men, and they were all piled onto a captured French boat and sent back to England. Six weeks it took them. It must have been a long time and very tiring. They arrived in, in Portsmouth and, uh, and they went from there. Uh, they were sent all the way up to Ashbourne, which is miles north, right mm. in the middle of the Midlands. Because mm. what the policy was that for what the what the English were doing was that they discovered they were having thousands and thousands of prisoners of war because uh, Napoleon held every English person he could lay his hands on in France and he wouldn't let any of them come back. And that had been the usual practice was after battles you just let people go mm. back to where they'd been before. So the English had all these prisoners. What were they going to do with them? Well, most of them were sent to hulks, yeah. uh, which were these ships which were no longer being used by the Navy, and they were really rather horrible places to be. Uh, they were self-governing inside of them, but they were very, very poor and horrible places to be in. And the British also, what did they do with their, with their officers? Well, officers are decent chaps, you know. You can trust the decent chap's word, you know. He's a gent. And so you just wrote a... a parole certificate and you, you signed the certificate and said I won't try to escape and I'll stick by the rules and the English set up parole towns a long way from the coast which is why Wincanton became one but also Ashbourne and uh, Bialetti and these two generals and the other chap went up to Ashbourne where Rochambeau behaved extremely badly, was very, very rude to the people who were looking after him and everything. He was provided with a comfortable house, no matter. So they said, we're going to lock you up. And he said, ah, you can't do that. And he said, all right, we know what we're going to do. We're going to send you to Norman Cross. Norman Cross was the first place in the world to be built as a prisoner of war facility. It was not a prison. It was a large camp built to take 5,000 men, surrounded by fortifications, but to be more or less self-governing within, and a small number of retired Royal Navy staff to run it and liaise with the prisoners inside. And also for them to have, uh, they were encouraged to work, uh, set up small businesses, uh, trade, People used to come in, uh, it was a big thing, you came to Norman Cross, you brought your family on a Sunday for an outing and you bought things that the French had made and they made beautiful little, all sorts of things out of bone and mm. uh, uh, most beautiful, perfectly made ships, for example, carved out of bone and other things. And everyone got on surprisingly well. And there were almost no cases of breakouts. So mm. There were a few people who escaped, but they always were brought back, and uh, everyone had gone on quite well. The only trouble was illness. But then neither the English nor the French had a clue about how to 
if people went down with typhus, they died. Mm. You know? And uh, and so it bec- and at times it became very crowded. But the, what they did with these two generals, who had been so badly behaved, is they built a special little prison area for them in the hospital, which was run by the French medicals. Mm. And so they couldn't complain that they were being ordered around by horrible English. Mm. And uh, after six months of that, they were then allowed to mix with the other prisoner, or prison officers. Mm-hmm. And there they stayed for 18 months. And they reckoned that they were then behaving themselves. And they were sent to Wincanton. <laughs> and put up in the high street, almost certainly, in uh, what would have then been a, a thatched house. They've all been subsequently lost because there was a fire. And there Bioletti met and fell for a local girl. And Wynne Canton at the time, in, in, in 1793, had a population of 1,800. 600 in agriculture, 1,100 in trade and manufacture, 100 not. And they had flax and heirlooms and made a poor living trying to make a very cheap cloth, which was then there uh, was completely destroyed by the, by the factories that were opening up in the Midlands mm-hmm. and in the north. So people were very poor. So they were actually very pleased to see all these French prison prisoners who were sent. And there were a lot of them. There were up to 500, when you only had a population of 1,800. And they were living in houses uh, in the town, uh, having to pay rent. They were paid a grant by the British government, and that had to cover their rent and their food. Uh, And also, oddly enough, I mean, it was such a... You know, mm-hmm. If you were a decent chap or, or uh, middle class, you see, then the rules always could be bent. So there was a continuous flow of boats going from France to England, even though the two countries are at the war. Mm. You could get your money out. Nine French wives came and lived, <laughs> joined their men in, in Canton. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it was much better than being left on your own in France. Who, who knows how long these wars were going to go on. And of course, if you were a general or a decent chap, a, a senior rank, you would expect the local English decent chaps to invite you out yes. for Sunday dinner. <laughs> or to play handball, which there several handball that against the church walls, and there were other oh, ones right. just outside. Yes, and they all had this handball game which they played. <laughs> And the, the French had a, 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 a theatre, almost certainly where the, they're not sure where, but they think it's where the, the, the cinema is, was, you know, oh, right. the community church. Yes. They had a theatre and they put on plays and they were always inviting all the locals, come and see our plays, you see. Oh. And then they joined the local choir, <laughs> uh, even though they were not uh, Anglican, uh, they loved singing, a good number of them joined the church choir. And uh, also, they, most of them were, were Freemasons, and so they had a, a flourishing lodge. Yes. And 
all of this was going on and there were a good number of uh, young ladies or uh, young females of the English variety who thought this sounds like a good thing. I find myself a, a French boyfriend and they came here and sometimes they ended up with more than they had bargained <laughs> for and uh, in the way of babies. So that was uh, part of the scene. But Violetti fell for a rather good young woman who um, her family were running a, a small business in the town. The whole place was, was organised by somebody called uh, George Messiter and he was in charge of the local uh, militia and he was a lawyer and he had his own bank and he also owned a spring with special water uh, and he thought that uh, Wincanton could with a special spring take on Bath. <laughs> Only so didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen. He actually ended up bankrupt. But he was highly regarded and highly regarded by the prisoners too because he was a fair and honest man. Well, what happened after only 18 months of living in Wincanton was that Rochambeau decided to misbehave again. This time he said, let's go for a shoot. No, not a shoot, but they had no guns. Let's have a hunt. We need some dogs and get those and uh, we'll go out. Now, they, the, the prisoners, the parole prisoners had a boundary that they had to, they couldn't go beyond. It was a stone north, south, east and west of the roads and where, as far as they could go. And he took a bunch and they went deliberately beyond that and they went onto a farm and he set his dogs off, they saw some rabbits or something and the farmer saw this and it came up to him and said, you're a Frenchie, you should be inside Wincanton. And he said, don't you dare talk to me like this and hit this man. Whereupon he hit him back. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came rushing back to Wincanton saying, I've been attacked by the lower ranks, you see. Equality fraternity, there you yes. are. <laughs> and tried to whip up the prisoners. And so Messiter had a problem on his hands. So immediately put uh, Rochambeau under lock and key for the night and told Boyer that uh, he had watch it, better watch it. And then Messiter showed what a very clever man he was because uh, Alberto's fiance uh, came from Crediton. And uh, yes, and he said, I know what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to do three things. I'm A, going to split up these two generals because I can see that Boyer is a good chap and Rochambeau is a bad chap. We'll send him to Morton Hampstead. We're going to send you to Crediton where your fiancé's father has got businesses and also it's a small parole mm -hmm. town. And you are going to join the, the we're going to have a ceremony for you to join 
the lodge of the mm. Freemasons, and we have his certificate. Oh. And you are then the next day going to get married to your fiance by the local vicar in Wincanton, and then the day after that you're going to go off immediately to Crediton. So I've defused this potential riot mm -hmm. in Canton, and they've all seen that people have been treated very decently, but they've been haven't got away with anything. Mm -hmm. So off they went to Crediton, where he lived for nearly three and a half years, and he had a baby, uh, Cecilia, and uh, he made bagatelle tables because he couldn't. The local clockmakers obviously didn't like it very much. And also, oddly enough, his daughter uh, made a little one of these things that you sew. Uh, what do they call Samplers. A sampler, and we've got the sampler. Mm. And uh, they thought that we were going to be there for indefinitely, really, until all the wars were over. Mm. But surprisingly, the number of prisoners in England was getting so big they were frightened about the riots and, and also at that stage there was still quite like fear that Napoleon was going to invade England and mm. win because Napoleon was doing at this stage extremely well uh, on the continent. Mm. He was at the height of his power. So they decided to send all the prisoners who were still alive who had been on San Domingo back to France. And so suddenly Violetti and uh, Rochambeau and his wife and their two small children behind this page were sent back to France. General Rochambeau was immediately promoted and, uh, sorry, Boyer was promoted. Rochambeau was in disgrace because he had been defeated in San Domingo. Mm -hmm. And so then Bioletti uh, returned to France and Brigadier General Boyer appointed Chief of Staff to Marshal Victor and uh, he, as again to be ordinance of a very senior general like that would have been a big job mm. and uh, he, with a lot to organise. Um, and so for the next year or so uh, one can just imagine uh, his wife being housekeeper to the general with a, probably a nice house in Paris mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're all living together in one house um, and uh, having dinner parties and all that sort of thing mm -hmm. and also on his days off being able to take his wife around and see the joys of Paris which were at that stage really quite interesting and uh, the new Paris with the new aristocracy and his wife who was uh, known as a seamstress might very well have had some work making dresses yes. because oddly enough there was, this is the sort of thing one learns at just at that point there was a uh, a fashion in Paris for English fashions. <laughs> the English look. Yes. <laughs> and um, they 
But this didn't last for that long, uh, because Napoleon then had other ideas. And essentially, Napoleon wanted to keep English out of the continent. Mm -hmm. And that anyone who traded with the English, because the English had this manufactured goods, which was higher quality and much cheaper than anything that the French at first could create, or any other country in Europe, or Russia. And so they were not allowed to trade with Britain. And the British found that anyone who had stuff uh, that had not refused to trade, they sunk their boats yeah. and put them all under Brook blockade again. And um, so Napoleon said, we've got to do something about Russia because they they are trading with the British. And the Russians said, well, we've got to trade with the British because we aren't able to produce much ourselves. So then Napoleon to that side and he was ready to go to put the French, uh, the Russians under a lot of pressure and he called up the biggest army that had ever been put together uh, of 680,000 troops of whom only half were French and he marched them right across to Europe and Violetti and his lot were part of the a support column which came at the back was actually meant they were very hard worked and um, they marched in and what happened was that the Russians just would not fight them they got to the Russian border that he was hoping that he would never have to fight them at all but when they saw this enormous mm -hmm. army the Russians would say we've got to have a peace treaty now and we won't trade with the English any longer. Instead what the Tsar did was simply pull his troops back and back and back and so they went right into Russia yeah. and they had no winter clothes they were all dressed up in their summer finery looking fantastic <laughs> but terribly impractical and they started dying like flies from the time they went into Russia. By the time they finally had a big battle outside Moscow, the Battle of Borodino, mm. uh, they lost a huge number of men. And then they went into Moscow, no troops at all. And the Russian aristocracy had all withdrawn to their ha uh, mm. country houses. All the prisoners had been left out of the jail. The governor of the town, or the mayor, had given them money and said, set a light to everything. And they set the whole of Moscow alight. It was all wooden buildings. In comes Napoleon, his merry men, and that's what they were faced with. Nobody to fight, <laughs> and just this huge bro. They He again tried to get the Tsar to have a peace conference. Wouldn't have anything to do with him. Mm -hmm. And before he knew what he'd had, it was autumn and it was going towards winter and he was completely not equipped for the um, Russian winter and they had to fall back and it got colder and colder and they lost more and more men to the cold, to disease and it was the most appalling defeat for Napoleon.
what's happening to Bialetti. He gets, actually, he got, uh, when they were falling back, there was a big battle at Berezina, and he and his general and the whole regiment were taken prisoner because they got into the wrong spot. They were surrounded by Russian troops whose uniforms looked almost the same as theirs, <laughs> and they hadn't realised it. And so they had to surrender. Yes. And then Bialetti and Boyer were marched 900 miles oh, from Berezina to Moscow, from Moscow to Kazan, which is right out in Russia, mm. and very nearly died. Now, the reason was not because the Russians were trying to be cruel, but because, again, the Russians were handled with 100,000 prisoners of war, which I had no idea that they have so many. And the Russian plan was actually, was, hey, we like the French. The Russian upper classes only spoke French. Most yes. of them were learning <laughs> Russian for the first time in their lives. And they all thought that the French are civilised. Too many of our people are not civilised. <laughs> they serfs and barbarians. Yes. And... Uh, so they said, if we can get these French to stay in Russia, that'll be great for us. So they offered them jobs, they offered them proper pay if they would stay. And for the officers, they were all put up with local gentry. Mm. And so then they got... But by the time Bialetti and co. were caught right at the end of the war, and so most of the places much closer, they were already full of... So he was sent all the way to Kazan, where, believe it or not, the uh, you had the the, the, Tol the Tolstoy family took uh, looked after Boyer, and Boyer uh, and the Tolstoy do daughter of this particular count, who was not the one who wrote War and Peace, but probably his uncle, who was the, his generation earlier, and. Uh, he fell in love and he turned, he became orthodox, which you had to do if you were to marry a Russian woman, particularly one of, of, of high class like that. And then they went all the way from Kazan to St. Petersburg because the high count was actually working for the Tsar. Mm. And there, General Boyer also decided to work for the Tsar and uh, teaching military skills to young Russian officers because they had lousy training. Mm. And Bialetti was there. And so he was two and a half years in Russia until Napoleon still was finally beaten uh, in a big battle in Europe. And at that point, all the French were allowed to return home. And Bialetti almost certainly, I think, would have gone home by sea. Though there was a story that he walked all the way home. But that seems to be improbable. It was thousands and thousands of miles. Anyway, he got back to Paris. His wife and two children thought he was dead. Yes. But she was wearing willow's weeds, working as a seamstress. And they got together. He had another child 
kept away from the military, didn't get caught up in the battle which then took place in within a year mm. uh, of Waterloo. Waterloo. And back they came. They decided to come back to Wincanton, where her brother was, in the high street almost certainly. And uh, that's where he then would have arrived, penniless, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, and he lived, uh, first of all, in South Street, just at the bottom up here. And then uh, one skill that he'd learnt when he was out in San Domingo was how to cut hair and pull teeth. And on that long mm. sea voyage, coming back, he would have done that as well. And so he, with a market town, there were people who needed haircuts. And uh, he, they were able to live there. And then they moved into the property which is now Boots the Chemist. And then they moved further up the road. His first uh, wife, Mer uh, Mary, uh, died. He, after they had several children, three sons and one daughter, he lived in the high street and then he started doing clocks as well as cutting hair. And that made much more money because they then built a, bought a second property higher up. Uh, and he married Martha Ewins when she was 33 and he was 58. And they moved to 31 High Street, which is almost untouched. It's got red brick uh, and a bow window. Mm. And uh, he finally uh, moved to Portsmouth in 1861 uh, after living in Wincanton for 45 years. And mm. he died uh, in 69, age 91, in Portsmouth, uh, being looked after by his daughter. In a fair old life. Incredible. Incredible life. And that is the end of the second part of my interview with John Baxter for the Secret Storytellers of Wincanton podcast. This project has been funded by the Arts Council of England as part of a National Lottery Project Grant and South Somerset District Council. And we thank them both. We've had a great time making these stories and now we hope you will go and find the story trail. Thank you for listening. Bye. Oh,